I wanted to start by showing that because the picture is worth a thousand words. I had another one, but kind of lost it somewhere on in the internet land. Starts out as a square, and then the square starts to move. And all of a sudden you see a completely different shape, and when it ends, it's a circle. Exact same shape, but as you view it, it changes. Your viewpoint changes entirely what that shape looks like. To one extent or another, we are all deluded. If you don't think you're deluded, you're deluded. Depending on our point of view, we see the same movement differently. We say, see the same object differently. This video reveals why eyewitnesses to a crime are often unreliable by themselves. Each sees what happened from a different viewpoint and therefore tells a different story of an event. A good detective tries to piece together the truth from the various eyewitness accounts of the crime. We have seen many videos that show a crime and seeing is believing. You're watching somebody getting beat up. You're watching somebody getting robbed. And then you see a video and you conclude the guilt or innocence of the parties who are involved. And then you see another video from a different perspective and your conclusions can change dramatically. All depends on where you sit. There's an old saying, seeing is believing, but we only see from one paradigm, and therefore our beliefs are based on partial truth, only one viewpoint. This condition is amplified dramatically when we're dealing with the spiritual realm, a dimension that is not viewed through these eyes, but through the eye of the soul, the eye of God, who has a number of paradigms that have used at the same time, some of them we don't even know exist. An interesting story in Second Kings, chapter 6. The king of Aram was making war against Israel, and he had a meeting of his generals, his officers, and he says, I want you to go to such and such a place and prepare to attack the Israelites when they come by. But the man of God sent a message to the king of Israel, and Elisha said, be careful. Don't go by that place because the Aramean soldiers are hiding there. The king of Israel then sent a message to his men at the place that the man of God warned him about, and the king of Israel saved quite a few men that day. The king of Aram, when his plot was thwarted, assumed that there was a spy in his midst, that one of his, his officers had leaked information to Israel. But his officers told him that Israel had the prophet, prophet Elisha, who could hear the secret words of the king even while he was in his own bedroom and thereby he avoided a trap. 
His officers believed the stories about Alicia, and for them, believing was seeing. The king of Aram sought to capture Alicia because he could be a tremendous asset. If you know your enemy's plans, your victory is far more assured. So he sends a vast army to Dotan, where Alicia was, and he surrounds the city. In the morning, Alicia's servant sees the great army of Aram that vastly outnumbers the armies of Israel, and he runs to Elisha and tells him. And Elisha is kind of cavalier about it. You know, he's not disturbed. And he tells his servant, stop worrying, don't worry. Those who fight for us are greater than those who fight against us. And of course, his servant looks at him a little cockeyed, you know, out in the sun too much. He then prays that the Lord will open up his servant's eyes. And when the servant looks again, he sees the hills covered with the armies of God and fiery chariots and just a host, an army ready to make war. His soul is comforted. He no longer fears. But that's not the end of the story. The story goes on. Elisha prays that God would blind the army of Aram. He then goes to them and tells them, this is not the right city. This is not the right way. Follow me. And he leads him, this vast army, to a city <coughs> in Samaria. I sort of chuckled when I read that part because... Uh, I went to see Star Wars once, and the Italian version, Obi-Wan Cannoli, could have rebuked that, but I didn't, because I, I found it hilarious, but I'm odd. So Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker are bringing the two droids into the city, and there's some guards there, and they stop him, and Obi-Wan goes, these are not the droids you're looking for. And the guards pass him through, and that's pretty much what happened. Elijah went to the forces of Aram and said, These are not the Jews you're looking for. And off they go. When the king of Israel, in fact, okay, when the king of Israel sees the power that Elisha has over this army and how confused they are. He says to Elisha, can we kill him now? And Elisha says, no. No, rather, I want you to prepare a big meal for them, a feast. And after the uh, Arameans eat and drink, they pack up and they went home. And we're told that, Scripture tells us, the Arameans no longer sent any more soldiers into the land of Israel to make raids. Now, from a military point of view, this is insane. Your enemy has just gorged themselves on a feast. They're a little shickered. You know, they're a little drunk. 
Now's a great time to attack and wipe your enemy out. God tells Elisha not to do that. Aram has shown grace. Why? Because God's ways are not our ways. He knows things that we don't know. He knows things we can't possibly know. For instance, he knew the descendants of Aram, what they would be today. They are a Christian minority in Israel and among the Palestinians. God knew that the people who were fighting against Israel that day would accept and know the God of Israel and his Mashiach. In fact, I have a good friend in Israel. His name is Yusuf. He's a descendant of these people. His background is Aramean. He's a Christian Palestinian who commanded a 25-man team of valiant Israeli commandos, basically what we would call an SF unit. And he commanded this unit in the war we had with Lebanon in 2006. And he was injured, saving many in his own unit who were not Arameans. They were Israeli Jews. And they came under attack, and they went into a, a, a village that was entrenched with 325 of, uh, of Hezbollah in this village. And they were entrenched in there, and they, they were 25. They started taking rocket fire, RPGs, etc. Many of the guys were injured. And Yusuf kept going back in. He escaped, went back in, dragged out one of his buds, went back in, dragged out another by the, by the vest. He saved many in his unit that day before he caught some shrapnel on his knee. And he's probably still crippled today. Those who once fought against Israel had their eyes opened. And now they fight for Israel. How great is our God. That's an unbelievable story. If I hadn't seen and known, I would never buy such a story. It sounds too contrived. Sometimes seeing is believing. Sometimes believing is seeing. And sometimes those who can't see and yet still believe of the blessed ones, as our Lord told Tomas when he needed to put his finger in wounds. You believe because you have put your finger in the womb. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Everything in this physical creation reveals a portion of God's glory. The heavens and all they contain reveal his glory. The earth is filled with his glory. Man was created in the image and likeness of God to reveal a unique portion of God's glory in this creation. And the first man failed. God then chose Israel to reveal a microcosm of mankind, a small remnant of humanity, a particular and peculiar offspring of Avraham. 
not all of Avraham's children are chosen. Just a very peculiar line. And he desired they would fulfill the purpose of the first Adam, the first man. But there's an inherent problem with being created in the image and the likeness of God. It's easy for those beings, either angelic or man, to start to think of themselves as God. We bear that image, we can get puffed up thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. This is evident in both God's adversary, Hasatan, the accuser. It is also evident in Adam, the first man. Given a bit of authority or power, the desire for more authority and power begins to grow. Now, secular philosophers have noticed this propensity in man. A gentleman by the name of uh, Lord Acton came up with what is today a very famous saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, although Lord Acton's words are not true of the one who actually has ultimate power, it is true of all those made in his image and likeness. The truth of this statement is blatantly obvious as we view the kings of Israel. Now I'll avoid the obvious deficiencies of King Shaul HaMelech, many which, of which I discussed last week. I will also avoid Ishbosheth, who was crowned after the death of Shaul by the captain of his armies. The political intrigue involved in the kings of Israel is every bit as great as those involved in Europe and the Far East, the Near East. It, it's all the same. Man's proclivities are revealed and as soon as politics gets involved, there are no differences. Ethnicities, age, location, makes no difference. As man gains power, he begins to desire all the things of the flesh, which includes more power. The first true king of Israel the one whom the Lord describes as a man after my own heart, also reveals that he was a man often not like, unlike other men, had the same issues that he had to deal with. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 16, 12 describes David for us. Admoni imyafeh anayim v'tov. Adonai means ruddy or red. comes from the same root as Adam, Aduma, uh, Para Aduma, the, the red heifer. Um, Aduma is the red earth. Basically what is being described is a man who had a rosy complexion. He's, he looks healthy. He's not pale, weak. And he had beautiful eyes. And he was good to look at. 
That's a great description. But this handsome man had a problem with the lust of the flesh. When he sees Bathsheba, his mind is consumed with lust for her. He engineers the death of her husband, and she becomes his. And the sin here is great. Many in Judaism see the greatest sin that a Jew can commit within this passage. David could have had any woman he wanted. He was kind of rosy, had real pretty eyes. And he was good to look at. And he was the king. But he, instead he covets the wife of another. The Lord is very unhappy. He tells his prophet Natan to go to David. And he instructs him to tell him a story. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 4 verses. There were two men. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man had many flocks, but the poor man had only one little ewe, which he nourished, and who lived with him in his house with his children. And a traveler comes to the town, and the rich man desires to entertain him. And rather than take one of his own lambs, he takes the poor man's single ewe to slaughter and to eat. Well, David is undone. He's incensed. This man deserves to die. It's David's judgment. He backs up just a little bit and he says, he must make restitution fourfold. Now, when you steal something in the Torah, you add a fifth. You return what you took and you add a fifth to it. Here, David is going 400%, not 20%, 400%. He's angry. And the town looks at him, stone eyes. You're that man. Now David is undone again, but for a different reason. Verse 9 tells us that David, David has despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in God's sight. He despised God's word. He didn't follow it. He did what was evil. David is, his only words, I have sinned against the Lord. He's undone. He's broken. He has no idea what's going to happen next. And the Lord uses David's own judgment of the rich man to punish him. The house of David will never be at peace. Even one of his own children will rise up and seek to kill him to take the throne of Shalom. But even in the midst of this punishment, the Lord is not forsaken. David, 2 Samuel 12 again, verse 13, And Natan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. He removed this sin. You will not die. 
However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Lord shows David great grace. But his actions are not without consequence. We are then shown what many of my people consider to be the greatest of sins that a Jew can commit, giving the enemies of God a reason to speak against him, to curse him. The life of David is a stunning contrast. On one hand, he is, a, he is a man filled with love and passion for God. It drips from every psalm he wrote. And on the other, he's a man whose passions often lead him down paths that depart from Derech Hashem, the path of God. For this reason that David is my all-time favorite character, in scripture, a man who desperately desires to follow God, yet one who often stumbles as he negotiates that path. With all of David's many sins, God describes him as a man after his own heart, a man who desires one thing above all else. My favorite character authored my favorite psalm, Psalm 27. Verse 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. It's all he wanted, most of the time. David's next son is born to Bathsheba, and he sits upon the throne after David's death. When God appears to him and asks him what he wants, Shlomo replies, I want the wisdom of your Torah. Open your word to me and let me see. In 1 Kings 4, God gave Shlomo wisdom, deep wisdom. Great insight, deep understanding. And the scriptures say he was the wisest man in all of the East, which refers to Babylon. The Meiji, the wise men of the East, refers to Babylon. It was the seat of learning. And it also says he was the, also the wisest in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, where also there was all this esoteric philosophy and knowledge. Now, unfortunately, the more power and fame Solomon achieved, the less he drank from the wells of wisdom. Pride, power, the respect of others. He sought the wisdom of Torah, but Torah told him in Deuteronomy 17, what the king must not do. The king will not acquire many horses for himself, 
nor will he have many wives, lest his heart be led astray. And Solomon ignored this wisdom and acquired thousands and thousands and thousands of horses and stables and chariots. He accumulated 700 wives, 700 wives, and 300 concubines who are wives of a lesser status. He's called the wisest man. I say nay, nay. You, you had a thousand wives living in your house. I'm pretty sure the corner of his roof began to look real attractive to him to live there. I'm old. I'm not that old. I wasn't there, but I guarantee you there was no peace in that house. Guaranteed. And many of his wives were women from the nations that surrounded Israel, women that he found attractive, but women who brought with them the idols of their gods and set them up. And these foreign women led Solomon and many in Israel astray. They led them to, to leave the God of Israel. Who opened the Red Sea, who led us to the land. We left him to the gods of the nations that surrounded us. Solomon asked his father David, Although the scriptures don't describe it this way, he did the same thing. He despised the word of God when he did evil in the sight of his Lord. He satisfied his foreign wives' desires, and he set up many high places for these idols and gods. And the Lord is livid with Solomon in 1 Kings 11. And the Lord tells him in verse 13, I will tear the kingdom from you for this sin. But in his mercy, God says to Solomon, I won't do it during your lifetime. I made you promise. Now it's easy to look at Israel and determine the Lord has forsaken us. It's easy to look at the church, say the same thing. History of the church is written in blood. History of Israel from one paradigm, written in blood. Both represent people who proclaim the name of God and who have done evil. and despised the word of God and done evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's easy to look and say, no, the Lord has forsaken you. You're no more. In fact, Islam says that. The Jews were the first people of God, the church replaced them, and we replaced the church. Succession. But God doesn't see as a man sees. He doesn't think like we think. And hallelujah, he doesn't judge like we judge. The mercy shown to David and Solomon as individuals was also shown to the nation of Israel. 
And God declares, I will not forget those whom I foreknew. He will not abandon those whom he calls Yakari, my precious. God's promise in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Can she have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget, says the Lord. Isaiah 43. We'll read just these four verses. 1, 3, 4, and 13. Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And the word that's used there is Yeshua. You are precious in my sight. Even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver you out of my hand. None. I act. And who can reverse it? These words continue to grow as you read them. It's like an explosion, and the smoke just keeps billowing and get larger. These words get larger. They were true then. They were true when the Lord spoke them. The same Yeshua, when he spoke them in John chapter 10. Verses 27 through 29. And he reiterates the power. No one can take you out of my hand. The promise that no one can reverse the words of the living God. Who has that power? Who can challenge those words? Certainly none who are born of woman, who are formed of the Adumah, the red earth. The Lord is faithful and the Lord is true. And the promises and callings of God are irrevocable. Once spoken, they are eternal. When God utters the word, truth rings forth. And there are none who can reverse the things that he declares. The eternal one speaks words that endure through every age and epoch. His words are carried on an eternal holy wind that reach the ears of all in creation, including the creation itself, which awaits eagerly the revelation of the sons of God. The ones who were precious in his sight. The ones he knew even before the foundations of the earth were laid. And the ones he will never forget. The nations may rave. They may clamor 
against the Lord and those who walk with him. But he who sits in heaven laughs. It's mocking. A flood may come against those who stand before the Lord, but he will be with them. Even in the midst of the waters of oppression. He will open their eyes and reveal the path they should travel. Whisper in their ear, go to the left. As those who fight against Israel increase in number and ferociousness, are we to fear? Am I to be afraid? The Lord says, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. If that is your fate, who can stand against you? Who are you going to be afraid of? I wrestled uh, on whether or not I was going to bring this up. I'm sure most would disagree. Uh, you don't want to bring up this kind of stuff. It's, it's not good. I think it's good. We got ourselves a bomb threat this, this week. Gentleman by the name of, well, I'm sure this is a num de plume. Calls himself vampire. And immediate, immediately, it, there's an endearing quality there, right? You just want to hug him. And he wrote to 30 Jewish organizations. We were just one of them. We had the sheriff's department out here wandering through, trying to see if there was anything that didn't look the, out of the ordinary. Because he said, I have planted a bomb in here. Now, apparently he doesn't... You know, I left the shul that night at 7. I was back at the shul at 2 in the morning, so it, that didn't give him a lot of time to really plant the bomb. And, you know, we checked, obviously, but I, I didn't really think this was a clear and present danger. His last words were, please tell the media about us. The threat level dropped down, way, way down after that. But of course, on the other hand, I will bet every dollar I have in this world that there are people who are not sending emails who seek to hurt those who walk in God's paths. That I have no doubt of. And so you do your best until the angels leave the rest. We've taken precautions. There are people in this room right now who are ready to stand in the gap if somebody comes in to do harm to, the, to this congregation. And to the rest, the rest of the matter, well, that's in God's hand. The day of my death was written on the same day as the day of my, my birth. Read the Word of God. It's a moed. It's an appointed time. And that's why I never feared when I would go over to Israel. And when people asked me about my son, aren't you afraid he's going to Iraq? No. 
In fact, his chances of dying on his motorcycle in Denver are greater. That's not hyper... That's not... I'm not being facetious. They're greater than his chances of dying in Iraq. God places a call upon people's lives. My life, your life. No one doesn't have a calling. That needs to be forefront, foremost in your view. Here's another promise by our God. In this world, you'll have trouble. As soon as I give you a calling, my enemy will call others to hinder you. It's the way it is. We tend not, not to see this as a battle, as a war, but it is. It's described throughout Scripture. As a war. Shall the warriors hide? Rav Shaul was invincible his entire life. Snake bit, shipwreck, beating, stonings. That boy was a hard kill. Until the day he wasn't. Until the day he had finished what the Lord had given to do, him to do. His death wasn't a punishment. It was a reward. What did Yeshua say at his... Father, the time has come. Glorify your son. And when the time had come, Shaul was glorified. He left the trouble here for the glory of the kingdom. Lord, punish me. No punishment. That's reward for, for staying on path. That's a decision every person has to make. But know the battle will find you can't hide, the battle will find you, and the battle has begun. This is taking place. Anti-Semitism since October 7th has increased almost 400%. And here's what that tells me. It's never left. It was always there. It's just now it's okay to say it. It's in vogue before it wasn't. October 7th was an ignition point, that's all. The nature of the times we live in right now is acting like a precipitation agent. A drop placed in the water and solids and stuff is being separated out. I don't physically see the armies of God, the fiery chariots, chariots. I know they're there. 
until the Lord takes me home on one. Chazak, chazak. Be strong. And you will be strengthened. Father, in Yeshua's name, I thank you. You have called us. You have anointed us. You have sifted us. Lord God, as these days get darker and darker and darker, may the light that you have entrusted to each of us shine even more brightly up against that dark backdrop. Let us hear the words you wish us to speak. Let us hear what it is you want us to do and imbibe us with the strength to do all that you have commanded. Father, show grace to your children. Yeshua, behold your bride. Revive us. Yeshua's name. Amen. By the way, pray for vampire that the Lord would reveal a new name for him. <laughs>